Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. And our greetings to those who may be on the so-called old calendar, those Eastern churches or the Julian calendar, who are still within the season of the Nativity of our Lord. Now, all of us are to an extent... Because actually, if you want to be pretty exact about it and pretty ancient about it, pretty liturgical about it, the event of our Lord's Incarnation can actually be celebrated all the way until February 2nd and actually a couple days after because there's a post-festive of the feast of our Lord's entrance into the temple. When he was a child, he was presented into the temple to the elder Simeon in accordance with the law. So actually, for all of us, especially those on the Gregorian calendar, you could justifiably extend your Christmas season until February 2nd, because it's really about the season of light, of illumination. But for the most part, most of us have moved on beyond the season of Christmas, and even, to an extent, the season of Theophany. There is a post-festive of Theophany. In fact, today is actually the Sunday after Theophany in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, if you are on the Gregorian calendar. Well, hopefully that wasn't all too complicated for you. But in this calendar, especially this week, in the Byzantine liturgical calendar that's on the Gregorian calendar, the so-called new calendar, we have a whole lineup of desert fathers, monastics. Now, Maybe that's a comforting thought because we're in the midst of the dog days of winter now here, at least in many parts of the United States, especially here where we broadcast our Light of the East in the Chicago area. We're here in that period of January when most of the holidays are over now and we have to contend with those coldest days of winter. So maybe the idea of talking about desert fathers and people who lived in the desert might be kind of comforting, maybe to be kind of warming to our mind, heart, and body. In particular, the featured desert father this week is St. Anthony of the Desert. He was actually considered to be the founder of monasticism. Monasticism begins in Egypt, of course, among the Eastern churches, and eventually spread to the West. But if we look at monasticism for a moment itself, the monasticism itself, how it developed, and developed, as I mentioned, in the deserts of Egypt, because what was happening was the persecutions of Christians were gradually wearing, the persecution of Christians, in other words, the blood martyrdom, was gradually fading out. I and mean, it's never, ever totally gone from the earth. In fact, we live in a time now where there is more bloodshed 
by Christian martyrs than ever before, believe it or not. So it's never gone from the earth. But the early Christian martyrs, that era, was kind of phasing out. Christianity is becoming more and more accepted, and eventually with Constantine, it becomes completely legalized in the Byzantine Empire. And that's in, of course, the year 315 AD. So what happened was these Christians, who were so deep, so devout, they actually missed that opportunity for a real witness. Not that they wanted to be tortured and flayed alive and killed and have their blood shed, per se, but they were willing to embrace any kind of witness for the love of God, even if it meant harm to their own body or even death to their physical bodies. Well, as the blood martyrdom began to phase out, Christianity became more accepted. These devout Christians still wanted some kind of radical witness, not because they were crazy or egotistical, because they loved God so much, and they wanted to witness in a powerful way. So what they began to do was to develop what we now call white martyrdom. They began to flee from the growing cities and from what they thought were some forms of, of decadence, temptation. They wanted a life in which they were dying and witnessing in another way. And that's why it's called white martyrdom, because it still involves a dying, no longer necessarily a dying in terms of our earthly life, but certainly a dying in the body and in the spirit, so as to rise to their more pure, holy, true selves. So these were radically devout Christians who sought the deserts, the solitude of the desert, the rigors of the desert, the ascetical life. Now, there were several kinds of these monastic forms, and they, as I mentioned, they began around Egypt, and they spread to Syria and then Palestine, and eventually to Russia and the Slavic lands, and of course, after that, to all over the world. Western monasticism developed out of the Eastern monasticism, but it first started in Egypt, the Middle East, Palestine, the Slavic lands, Russia, and then from there westward, and then throughout the whole world. In Lower Egypt, there was a style of monasticism that was a hermit style. And the prototype of this was the person we're featuring today, St. Anthony. St. Anthony the Great, St. Anthony of the Desert. He has a number of titles. He was a Coptic Christian, which, of course, is a word that basically means Egyptian. And he was a layman. He was not well-educated, but he was the son of well-to-do peasants. And one day he was in church, and he heard a voice from God telling him, Go something like St. Francis, go sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. So he did just that. He withdrew from society, and this was about the year 269 AD, and went into the deserts of Egypt. He died in the year 356 at the age of 105, and he is still regarded as the father of monks. And he had many disciples. In fact, that's what would happen. You would get a spiritual man, and they would call him Abba or father. And around him, disciples would gather, in a sense, spiritual sons. And from there, you would develop these, eventually, these communities. And from there, later on, all the way to the present is what we get today, especially in the Western church, as so-called religious orders. So it all started, though, with this idea of a spiritual father. And that's a very strong concept in Eastern spirituality, especially in Eastern monasticism. The father, the spiritual father, was not a, a guru or necessarily a spiritual director as we know it today. He was someone with whom the son, quote-unquote, in other words, the young monk, would share their thoughts continuously. 
the Eastern monastics were very big on this idea of thoughts. They called them, the word was logismoi. In other words, what thoughts are going through your head? What are you thinking about? And they would share those thoughts constantly with their spiritual father, and he would reflect with them on those thoughts, and he would try to guide them and give them the kind of spiritual insight that would help their sons to themselves grow into spiritual fathers. It was very much a spiritual father-son kind of relationship. And the young monk was always very, very much attached to the father. So the spiritual father was very, very big, was very important to the monk in the Eastern monastic tradition. So that's why we call many of these monks Abba, of course, meaning father. From there, we get, of course, the word abbot, which was used even today in the Western church, the Western monasticism. So we'll get back to our great Anthony of the Desert later on. But some other forms of monasticism that developed were in Upper Egypt. It's called the Chenobitic monasticism, which basically means a cell. In a less remote part of Egypt, the radical break with society took a different form, and one of the big figures here was Pacomius, and we're talking about the years 290 to 347 AD. He became the creator, this Pacomius, of an organized monasticism. And these were not hermits, but communities of brothers united to each other in work and prayer. And there are some sayings that are preserved from this region. But the Pacomius style of monasticism was of vital importance in the development of monasticism itself. In other words, what happened is, first it started out as hermits, then more hermits would come and start to gather around a hermit, an Abba, a father, and then another kind of style of monasticism developed, and that would be what we would know today as the communities themselves. That's the Cenobitic. They would have cells, but they would be together in a community. First it was hermits and his community. Then there was another form of monasticism, which were groups of ascetics, the smaller groups of ascetics. And this developed in the areas of Natria, which was west of the Nile Delta, about 40 miles south of Natria. This third kind of monasticism is described with the word lavra, or skeet. This is where several monks lived together, often as disciples of an Abba, you know, a father. So rather than a larger community of monks, it's a smaller community of monks. In fact, even today in Eastern spirituality, in Eastern monasticism, what you have is you have a main monastery, then you have in a different location what they call skeets, almost like little satellites or spinoffs of the main monastery. So that was the third form that developed. And This third form of monasticism was something that was evolved more around a Greek influence. The monks were a little bit more learned, a little more educated. And one of the other great figures of this time was Evagrius Ponticus. And again, his time is 345 to 399 AD. Now, there are a couple other forms of monasticism that developed during these centuries, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But the main thing to remember is that monasticism in the East did not have, as we know today in the West, religious orders per se. It was largely people that would just come out to the desert, inspired by a particular master of the spiritual life, an Abba, a father, an ascetic, and just start to live the life. Monasticism in the East has a rather organic dimension to it, an organic development, and still an organic development to it. So we're going to talk more about these great ascetics, these great monks that we're looking at in the Byzantine liturgical calendar this week when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. 
That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you... You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. We are bringing you into the desert to hopefully warm your body, heart, and mind during this time of the dog days of winter, the middle of January. We're talking about the different forms of monasticism that developed, always originating in the East. Our fourth form is where Egyptian monks created another kind of break. In fact, this happened in Syria. And these monks were great individualists and they deliberately imposed on themselves very, very difficult lifestyles. They went about naked in chains. They lived unsettled lives, eating whatever they found in the woods. They chose to live at the limits of human nature, close to the animals, the angels, and the demons. Now, they were typified by these men that were called stylites because they sat upon a stylus. You know, stylus means like a long kind of vertical kind of instrument, only it was actually not an instrument. (laughs) It was a column that they would stand upon for years and years. Believe it or not, yeah, and grow in holiness. The first to adopt this life was Simeon the Stylite, and he lived for 40 years on a 50-foot column outside of Antioch. There's a legend that Simeon Stylites, or Stylites, converted and cured a blind dragon, and this supposedly indicated both his approachability and his concern to communicate the wisdom to which his asceticism had given him access. So these were what we might call extremists. But the thing is, though, these men were serious about the spiritual life. In fact, what would happen was many people would come to them at the foot of their pillars and ask them for lots of spiritual advice and guidance. And these men grew in spirituality and great wisdom, and they would give that advice. And they were tested. One time, an emperor came to one of the stylites. I think it was Daniel. There was Daniel and there was Simeon. Those are the two famous stylites. And they asked him, come down from that pillar. They didn't think he would. So he came down and says, yes, what do you want? And the emperor said, hmm, well, I guess you're for real. 
because you are humble enough and obedient enough to come down from your pillar, because they never would. You know, that's where they lived. That was part of their asceticism. I know it sounds very bizarre for us today, but these men did exist. They became great spiritual masters, masters of the ascetical life. Another form of monasticism, now this is a quite a bigger development, in Asia Minor, in Cappadocia, which is today modern-day Turkey, there was a more learned and liturgical monasticism. And the key figure here was St. Basil the Great. And we have a Byzantine liturgy with his name as attributed to him, which we celebrate on special feast days. In fact, we just did a little while ago on January 1st, which is his feast day, and during the Lenten season and other great moments too, such as Theophany and Christmas. But here, his followers were known as theologians and writers rather than as simple monks of the Egyptian style. In other words, they were more than just ascetics. They, these were, in fact, Basil was very learned. And many of these men came from wealthy, learned families, but then eventually they took on monasticism and, of course, became ascetical. They gave their wealth to the poor. But they also made great contributions to liturgy and to theology. So Basil the Great in Asia Minor. And then finally, in Palestine, the great monastic center of the 5th century was in Palestine in the Judean wilderness especially around the deserts of Gaza. There were great spiritual masses there. Again, in the Egyptian tradition, people like Dorotheus and Euthemius and Sabas. In fact, I was able to visit one of those monasteries years ago when I took a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. It was the monastery of George Kozovite. There's also the monastery of St. Sabas, which is still there today. If you ever have a chance to go to the Holy Lands, try to get to these monasteries in the desert. It's amazing. They're just like carved into the rocks in the desert. You can hardly see them because, in fact, that was actually part of their protection. Because remember, the desert was a place not exactly of escape. In one sense, it was escape, but it was really a, a place of encounter. You would encounter evil. You would encounter demons. You would encounter robbers who would try to rob you. So these monks were able to have their cells carved into these caves and hidden areas in the rocks in the desert. But also, you encounter God. You encounter the peace and the beauty of creation. And it was believed by the monks that if you couldn't find God alone in your cell, you could not find him anywhere else. Okay, let's look now more closely at this great father of monasticism, St. Anthony the Great, or St. Anthony of the Desert, or Abba Anthony. He has several titles. He was born in central Egypt about 251 AD, and he too was the son of peasants, as we mentioned before, and they were farmers, and they were Christian. And he heard in 269 this voice of God in church telling him to go, sell what he had, and give to the poor, and come follow Christ. So he devoted himself to a life of this asceticism under the guidance of a recluse near his village. In other words, there was another ascetic out there somewhere, and he followed his advice. But in 285, he went alone in the desert to live in complete solitude. As I mentioned, anytime someone did that, people always were attracted to them. People are by nature attracted to holiness. The world today likes to knock and make fun of holiness or piety. In fact, a lot of times when people talk about their sexual morality, they'll make a comment, well, what do you expect? I'm not a monk. They say it almost like disparagingly. But underneath it all, there is a deep admiration because we're made the image and likeness of God. And so even though we sometimes deny it, or we're not aware of it, or we cover over with all kinds of layers of secularism, we are made to be attracted to holiness because holiness is about being truly human. And we are attracted to real humanness. And that's how people like Anthony were. And that's why people would come out there and follow them in this, what we consider to be a very radical lifestyle. 
So what happened was Anthony went out to the desert and he visited Alexandria at least twice, which was the big, big main city there, one of the great of the four patriarchal seas in the east at the time. And he went out there twice, once during the persecution of Christians and again to support the bishop Athanasius against heresy. In fact, St. Athanasius, the great doctor, father of the Eastern Church, wrote a famous book on the life of St. Anthony. It's where we get a lot of information about Anthony. He really admired him. And Anthony left the, the desert, and these monks would never leave the desert. Remember, they fled from the city because they thought that was, you know, kind of a cesspool of temptation for them. They wanted to really die to self. You know, that white martyrdom reached the heights of spirituality, not in an egotistical or prideful way, but in a very genuine way. They were very, very much in touch with the concept of real holiness, of purity of heart, and in contrast to their own sinfulness. But twice Anthony left, and he left out of courage and out of charity. He felt summoned to go into the city and help people, especially his friend Athanasius, or to fight the heretics. Otherwise, he was in the monastery. When Abba Anthony, or Abba Anthony, lived in the desert, it says that he was beset by Achidia. Now, Achidia is one of those with Eastern churches, and the monks of the Eastern church would call one of the demons, or the West would call it the seven deadly sins. There's actually eight of them in the East. Of course, there's going to be more. There's going to be one more. <laughs> but one of those is Achidia, which is actually a kind of a, kind of a spiritual laziness or despondency. And he was attacked by many sinful thoughts. And so the story goes, he said to God, Lord, I want to be saved, but these thoughts do not leave me alone. What shall I do in my affliction? How can I be saved? A short while afterwards, when he got up to go out, Anthony saw a man like himself sitting at his work, getting up from his work to pray, then sitting down and plaiting a rope, then getting up again to pray. It was an angel of the Lord sent to correct and reassure him. He heard the angel saying to him, Do this, and you will be saved. At these words, Anthony was filled with joy and courage. He did this, and he was saved. I'm reading this little story from a book called The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, the alphabetical collection, translated by Benedicta Ward. It was published in 1975 by Cistercian Publications. Again, the author is Benedicta Ward. And this is a kind of a classic book. I would highly recommend it to you, The Saying of the Desert Fathers. It gives information about these great ascetics, these Abbas in the deserts of Egypt and Palestine, but also a lot of their sayings. And what happened was they would collect these sayings over time, little pearls of wisdom. It was kind of disorganized and it happened over some centuries, but little by little began to pull it all together. And this is one of those books, which is English. Again, it had to be translated from the original languages. This book, again, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, highly recommended to you. 1975, published in 1975 by Cistercian Publications, and the author is Benedicta Ward. Let me give an example of some of these sayings. Here's one by Abba Anthony, our featured monk today. He said to Abba Payment, who was another great figure at that time, This is the great work of a man, always to take the blame for his own sins before God, and to expect temptation to his last breath. Now, I find that very helpful as a priest, not just personally, but also in counseling other people. Sometimes when people come to me in confession, especially they're older, sometimes they get frustrated, almost despondent, because they want to be perfect. They figure they're old enough to already have a lot of sins behind them, and yet they still struggle with things. So I always tell them from this wisdom of the Desert Fathers that indeed expect temptations to our last breath, but also know that God's grace is available to our last breath. We have many great pearls of wisdom from these monks. We have a great, great legacy of asceticism, of liturgy, of spirituality 
from these desert fathers whom we feature this week, many of them, in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road. Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>